uh, fun for me to do that. that. Well, hello, everybody. It is amazing what a panic I can get into about writing a talk. Um, the pre-performance um, jitters or whatever it is, feeling like the thoughts are all swirling around in a completely unorganized way and um, trying to put them together so that they'll come out in some sort of order. And now that I'm here and I see everybody just people together, it's a different feeling, like a, our minds are so funny the way they can get very cranked up about stuff and then it changes and it is no longer like that. Which is a little bit the story of our, of the talk, uh, oh, practicing awareness with love. So I just um, like to know if anyone has uh, just come to Cambridge Insight for the first time tonight. Hey, welcome. And has anyone, yes? It's on, but I'm trying not to make puffs of air in it. So is this better? Yeah, okay, yeah. So people, some people are here for the first time. Some people are here for the millionth time, it seems. And anyone is here for the millionth time? <laughs> So let's take just a moment to um, feel that we're here in the room together and reflect on what's supportive for us in our life, like taking life as a sacred gift in a sense. What is it? Does something come to mind that feels like it reassures you or upholds you or helps you? Could be spiritually, emotionally, or even just the floor, or food, having a bed to be in. Let's imagine that uh, whatever feelings of reassurance you may have been able to find, you can, we can share them with each other, uh, wishing for each other that we all might feel stable and supported in our life by the elements that are present for us that we can appreciate. And if someone here is in a state of mind where you can't really find that, see if you can receive the offering from the others in the room kind of as an imaginary gift that you might feel that. Now, very many different kinds and ages of people in this room, which is as it should be in a Buddhist center, many kinds of minds and surely um, different kinds of days that you had and places that you came from and how you feel right now. So each person might be here for a slightly different reason, a slightly different goal or interest. It could be for just to be a little quiet or to hear something that feels lively or feel relief from your suffering or curious, wanting to enjoy your life more, uh, find love for yourself or love for others, whatever your feelings or reasons might be. Um, those also are very beautiful and diverse. But somewhere behind all of our reasons and goals and um, approaches to meditation, there's a a kind of understanding that we may have of what His Holiness the Dalai Lama means when he says that our happiness and unhappiness depend more on our attitude really than what happens to us outwardly. That through meditation and working with our mind we can find ways of being and relating to our life that make more sense, that are more in alignment and that bring more peace and joy and happiness. And the core teaching of Buddhist practice, as many spiritual practices, is the teachings of wisdom and of love. This summer I was teaching at a retreat with um, Jack Cornfield and Trudy Goodman. And instead of saying mindfulness, which is a term that if you've done, well, probably if you've even read the newspaper in the last three or four years, the term mindfulness may be familiar to you as a meditation term. They, um, 
mindfulness being um, being present and not judging, being present in your experience and being able to learn from it, kind of. That's one definition. But Jack and Trudy at this retreat had stopped saying mindfulness altogether and they were replacing it with the term loving awareness. Afterwards, another meditator friend asked me, why do you think they did that? This is a whole new word, you know. Are they trying to get a trademark going for themselves? Are they, you know, like, are they going to market this? Like, and every time they say loving awareness, the little copyright sign is going to appear over their heads. Um, or were they perhaps making a kind of a point to remind us of the caring and connection that's inherent in meditation practice to make sure that we don't forget it? That's what I think it was. That mindfulness, the term, can sound a little bit dry or like um, schoolish, or it's actually um, just a translation of the Pali and Sanskrit words smirti or sati, which means to remember. But what are we remembering? To remember to be here and to be at peace with what's happening here and now. Since part of mindfulness is to be aware in a particular way without anger and without um, grasping and grabbing or making an agenda out of our experience, to be aware of what's here and now and let what's naturally happening happen, there is a lack of hatred, a lack of judgmentalness, a lack of pushing it away. And our understanding in Buddhist practice, as in many spiritual practices, is that if you remove these sort of superficial, um, difficult forces from the heart, then we're naturally able to love. We're naturally loving and caring. So mindfulness as loving awareness just emphasizes that um, there's love present when there's no hatred. Um, Love is more natural to us and deeper. The other um, piece of their calling it loving awareness, I think, is like an activist reminder against sort of difficult things in our, that one of the sides of Western culture, which is now, I would say, like global culture. It's um, It's not so different in all other parts of the world that we tend to get lost in our minds. Uh, We tend to feel like we need to be going somewhere, making something happen, making things better all the time, like we need to do it all by ourselves, and we forget that we're all connected and we're all kind of part of the same world that we share, the world that actually sustains us. There's a tendency to um, believe that our mind is, you know, the thoughts in our brain, sort of. Um, I'm just sort of a little bit loose language, but we forget that our thought is never the same as the thing that we're thinking about. So if you can you know, think now about your couch in your house, it's not the couch in your house because your couch is in the house. And anything that you conceptualize is never the same as the thing that you're thinking of. Yet we keep falling into this feeling that our thoughts are so very real. And in that sense, we live in a divided way um, when we're swallowed up in our thinking process and our concepts and ideas about the world and our ideas about each other. Some of the little side effects of this are making separations in our life. Like, say we had our day of life today. Is it easy to think that your life is not your work and your work is not your life? Is that an easy thing to think of? And that meditation is separate from life, work, home, and dinner. Um, The feeling of, oh, well, now I have to go and work or now I have to go and do something. Sometimes you feel like you just lose touch with yourself right into that activity. It's not that we intend to think this way, but we often just unconsciously begin to divide um, our life into different pieces. In similar ways, um, we barricade ourselves inside ourself, um, thinking of other people as maybe frightening. You know, like when I get panicking about the thought, it's almost the talk, I almost imagine that somebody's going to find something wrong with it. You know, so one of you guys will criticize me in your mind, and that's going to be terrible. So I'm thinking about other people as a menace, you know, and my mind will often think of that, like there's a sort of a quality of fear in relating to other people. Or there can be attachment, um, you know, lots of hope about how um, wonderful of a loving-kindness bath our talk might end up being. 
or just um, differences in ways that we have opinions about the weather. Like, was today a beautiful day, or um, did anyone think it was too hot? But it was just the weather that it was. You know, sometimes we think, like, the winter, I think people are afraid that the winter is going to be like last year and, or worse, and already afraid of the weather that's coming. And you can even have a long narration about how it's climate change and imbalance, and the Arctic is coming down here, and all the polar bears are drowning, and it really is um, terrible. And it may be so. I'm going to cover some of that later on in the talk. But say each person knows the basics of your day, what it was for you. Were there times during the day when you were sort of engraving it as being good or bad? Bad parts of the day and good parts of the day? Did anybody think like, oh no, at any time today? Anybody have that feeling? <laughs> this is not the way I want it to be. Um, I don't feel the way, the way I wished I felt or this didn't go the way I wanted it to or this was really great, I hope we can do this again, kind of thing, or not really being present. Well, in those engravings of saying that something was good or bad or putting it into a category, we lose something central um, about the ability to open to everything. That's what I'm calling awareness with love. John Kabat-Zinn likes to say that the Chinese word for what's called mindfulness, which I don't know how to pronounce it, maybe someone here would know, but that the character divides into something that means presence and something that means heart. So being present uh, through your heart is what mindfulness would be in Chinese characters. Presence of heart could be something that says, um, if my child grows up and works at Macy's all their life and they're happy, that's okay. They don't have to be more than they're going to be. Our day uh, could have been a beautiful day through all of its ups and downs because it is the day that we had. It's one day of our life, which we don't know if we'll have, how many more we'll have. Can our meditation practice be about opening to what is um, and opening to ourself through what it was? I myself had a sort of a crazy day. Um, I got my teeth cleaned. Usually I like to come and sit and meditate before this, giving the talk, so I also connect with the space and everything. And um, I had my teeth cleaned. I gave a talk this morning. I was late to that. Um, by about 10 minutes, they said, now you really scared us because um, I was, one time I absolutely forgot to go to that group. So then I felt terrible that um, I'm the person who makes mistakes all the time. I came home. I did some emails, then I thought I had something going on tomorrow night that I didn't really have, so I was in a panic. I tried to get someone to substitute for me. <laughs> then I found out that I was completely wrong and that the thing that I thought I was supposed to do is also actually next week, um, <laughs> you know? And the whole time I was thinking like, well, you know, this is, first of all, I think I've taken on too many commitments, that's for sure. In between, I also made tabbouleh. I planted some new chives in the garden. Um, I watched my mind, I felt compassion for myself, and I learned from um, all this panicking that sometimes it's actually okay, even though you're panicking. So love might be the Western word that goes with us through all of these kinds of ups and downs. Why the Chinese character says heart instead of mind in mindfulness, the presence of the heart, it's a kind of spiritual anatomy or a sense that um, maybe our, you know, our brain does have thoughts and stuff and our brain is useful for classifying things and very refined kind of decisions and perceptions of the world, not to put the brain down in any way. Or sometimes the brain actually has to intervene with the heart and say, look, you, know, you don't have to panic quite so much. But the heart is a kind of metaphor for the deeper wise mind that, that is at the core of the body or in the center of the body the way that our whole experience can be imbued with a kind of awareness beyond ideas of how it should be and how it should not be. And this sense of our ability to be aware or conscious and open to what's happening um, is one of our deepest gifts, one of our deepest possessions. Another thing that um, was said at the Trudy and Jack retreat is that loving awareness is who we really are uh, deeper than the clutter of our life or deeper than what happens. 
I don't know about that. But as the His Holiness the Dalai Lama wrote a book called um, The Art of Happiness um, that was on the bestseller list for a while. And a reporter came to him and said, um, oh, Your Holiness, can you tell us what was the happiest day of your life? And he looked at the reporter and he said, I think today. <laughs> I think right now, something like that. What was the happiest moment of your life? I think now. <laughs> It's such a great story because it's actually about this is the moment that we have to live. Like, how are we living it? Um, the meditation practice can help us get some kind of quietness and balance and steadiness so that we can open to whatever happens today and see that the happiness we seek, I mean, it's, it's a little too intense to say that we shouldn't look for happiness outside ourselves because... We're always engaged in an interaction with the world. And there are times when we really do need to accomplish something or change something outside of ourself to, um, or just try to help with the many situations of suffering that are outside us. Um, so it's not necessarily not outside, except that the experience of happiness and suffering is always is inside. It's in our heart, it's in our mind. And there's so much that we can do to make our life happier if we find the qualities of forgiveness and presence and love inside ourselves. Love for the one who is panicking or the one who's not happy. Finding that sort of sacred mental space of clarity and warmth and acceptance. I'm giving this talk um, during what are the high holy days of the Jewish tradition. If anyone here is Jewish, you will know that it was New Year's a few nights ago, and now there's a period of time when we're supposed to examine ourselves and see what is it in our life, what behaviors might we need to change, and what would we need to do to shift those, as well as being grateful for what's positive and to try to nurture whatever changes we need which is the same as saying the combination of awareness and love. That there's a kind of love that we need for ourselves, even to be able to admit where we have fallen down. And to be able to go there and say, well, I can change. It doesn't mean that I am bad or wrong. It means that um, I love myself enough to acknowledge and be intimate with myself as I really am and also know that I can change. So the, both the love and the kindness and the awareness are compared to the wings of a bird. This is a very old metaphor and well known to many of you if you've practiced for a long time, that the practice isn't complete without the two, without the inside and the clarity, which maybe you could call the mind or brain side and the love and the kindness side. It's like the two legs of a person that you can't really walk so easily. I mean, there are many ways of moving and of getting along uh, people who don't have two legs. I'm not leaving that out of the picture, let's say. But in general, just for the purpose of the image that um, the way our life moves along is to have both awareness and kindness. So an example of uh, kind of intelligence or wisdom without kindness is, um, I remember my father and his a very insightful, very intelligent person um, who grew up in a quite harsh disciplinarian environment. And I remember one time I was on the stairs, I'd had some kind of argument with him, and I started to cry, and he said, I'm, you know, pa, you're crying. Who can listen to someone who's crying? That's, you're not even worth talking to. You've, you know, in other words, if, you've, if you're taken over by emotion, uh, you don't really deserve respect, was the message. Now, after many years, and, you know, now I'm 60 years old, I've come to really understand my father and the, the way that he became like that. But it wasn't easy being his child. Um, at the times when he allowed that kind of fierce intelligence to take over from his kindness or his love, obviously he wouldn't be able to show weakness or vulnerability or cry himself because he wouldn't be able to respect himself. On the other side, there can be something that seems like love uh, without wisdom or without clarity, which is classically the enabler of an addict 
um, someone who buys into somebody else's neurotic need because you don't have the strength to stand up to it or you feel like you have to be nice all the time and um, you can get in worse trouble that way out of the fear of saying something sometimes we just let something go on we think that people will feel better and we're the one who can just handle the difficulty more than they can in the christian tradition there's a parable of a person who had a light who was a lighthouse keeper and they were given a certain amount of oil to keep the light on to keep the ships from going off on the rocks and people would come knowing that there was supposedly a lot of oil at the lighthouse and say, well, um, I ran out, you know, I'd like to be able to watch, my, see enough to make my dinner or, you know, I need oil to heat my home. And by the end of the month, the lighthouse keeper ran out of oil and all these ships crash with hundreds of people dying because they couldn't resist the wishes of like one by one kind of person. So there's times when we actually do need to make that kind of difficult decision. Not to say that it's easy to sustain both the kindness and the insight. Since as human beings, um, we easily go crazy, like kind of at the drop of a hat, being in balance mentally is um, kind of a, it's a real skill. Like when you go in a store and someone says, can I help you? And you're kind of like, I'm all set. <laughs> you know, leave me alone. This happened actually, um, this morning in the meditation group, someone had to go to get pick up a prescription and they were saying like they, they, they can't stand going into CVS nowadays because it seems like everyone has gone to corporate training and they say, you're gonna qualify for a coupon or something like that. And, and she feels like saying like, leave me alone. I know this is all about money and it's all completely fake and I don't want a coupon because you can't really be giving away money. You're actually trying to get money from me, you know, et cetera, on and on. And saying she didn't really <laughs> like being the person who has those feelings, um, you know, that's just one random small encounter. What was fun was in this group that we all put our mind, the group mind to it and started talking about, um, you know, what would it be like to make a genuine connection with those people? Maybe they do really wanna help you. Maybe, um, maybe they're trapped in their corporate role. Maybe there's some way that you can just look at the human being there in their life and wish them well and still not say that you're gonna let them help you or whatever it is, but to have some kind of authentic encounter. I had one friend who was practicing friendliness in stores and she said, um, she had this great revelation when some, she said, hi, you know, and the person went, Bleh. and she was like, you know, I had the space to let them be in their bad mood. Like I made a space of friendliness and into it they told me they were not in a great mood and I didn't need them to be nice back to me and that felt so good, she said, to be able to let the person be just a person wherever they were. That's kind of love, love meeting whatever happens. So whether it's the CVS or meditation or something that, you know, sometimes our ideal state is getting disturbed by things that are coming at us, you know, um, sometimes wanting, seemingly wanting to help us and sometimes not so much. We want to be with our breath in the meditation. Here comes a thought or here comes a noise. Um, the food that we wanted to order runs out just when you get up to the counter to make your order. The person before you gets the last one and you see them erasing it off the board, you know, the parking place. Or bigger things, like we thought we wanted to make somebody happy and we're not able to do that. Like we did our best and it just didn't work. Um, we wanted to make ourselves happy and we weren't able to do that, didn't work. Or we notice ourselves being like awkward or mean or kind of not as good at something as somebody else and thinking that the gap between ourselves and them is so huge that we're just gonna be condemned forever to be like this person and not that one. Forgetting uh, whatever other skills or beauty we might have in the moment of comparing ourselves with other people um, or with the way we think we should be. So, Meditation is also loving and not running away from all of this, the intimacy with all of this, um, which very oddly is able to steady our mind and steady our heart when we um, can learn to embrace and be intimate and be there fully with ourselves in any given moment. We can see that 
maybe we had a difficult interaction or a disagreement or something, we don't know how it's gonna go or we're waiting for some kind of outcome and maybe the outcome that seems to be coming isn't the one that we think that we wanted. I'm not, I know I'm not the only one who's had this kind of thing happen. To be able to fully allow what's happening, be present in this moment of our life where you can, maybe you can see the beautiful leaves in the window and the smile or the eyes of another person and still feel whatever you're feeling inside without trying to run away or shut it down or change it into something else, without feeling ashamed or without feeling guilty. And it's that ability to love ourselves inside that actually is transforming. I'm wondering, um, am I supposed to, s when do we promptly stop? It says here, it promptly begins at a certain time and promptly stops at an, another certain time. Can somebody help me with that? Let's see. Yeah, it ends, at, ends here at 8.45. Um, I think I'll talk a little bit longer. Um, I never like to give the same talk twice, so I never quite know how much of it is gonna come out and before it has to end. So let's say like taking as a baseline this ability to accept and love wherever we are and to be present. Um, that sounds like a very sort of big and round state of mind. So I'm just going to shift the metaphor a little bit and talk about, as Sharon Salzberg will often say, it's meditation or this art of practicing being present is kind of, it's also like a tightrope. Like as we want, are walking with our feet of mindfulness and love, you know, we put one in front of the other and then suddenly something goes, comes in and we want to grab it and we like get out of alignment like that. Like we leave that balanced place and we want this thing that's out there to bring it in and make ourselves okay with it. Like the needing to feel a certain way or needing for people or the world to behave a certain way so that I can be okay. So we lose our balance into that. It doesn't mean that we wouldn't go for something that we uh, want to get or to make our lives better. And it, that's, we're try I'm trying to keep, to make sure that we're not um, losing like the powerful motivation to become happier into this. But it's something about when we collapse into expectation, can we make an effort and then allow whatever happens to unfold? Like, can we put our whole fiber of our being toward doing our best and maybe not even always doing so much of our best, but still just doing our best generally um, in a reasonable way? And then let happen what happens. Because if we shut down and close around an expectation, expecting someone to do something to make me feel better, like our partner or something, then um, we, our mind is no longer open or creative anymore. The other thing that can make us fall off this balanced place or tightrope is if something comes at us that we don't like, so we fall off the tightrope by trying to get out of the way or push it away you need something to change in order for me to be okay. Like it's not okay for this to be happening and I can't um, tolerate this. So of course, this signal of intolerance or challenge can sometimes be the spur to make us act, you know, but there's some way that it seems like it, when things get difficult, there's part of our mind that says like, we gotta get engaged and to make this to be otherwise than it is now. And that's not always the most creative response to what's happening. Um, we have to be able to really see what is in a way, as best we can, um, to respond in a way that comes from all of us and not just from kind of part of us. And the other thing that makes us lose balance on our tightrope is uh, when we're not paying attention, um, being sort of shut down or not intimate with the moment. Um, sometimes walling ourselves off into protecting ourselves and not being able to see clearly. So today I was, um, during my teeth cleaning, I was chatting with a person who was helping me and she started telling me about her daughter who was born in February. She was six months old and she said, um, I don't let her run around with a cookie in her hand, she said. And my, my mind says, well, now I see why you're a dental hygienist. You see, you're not like, <laughs> you know, you like keep your kid kind of neat. But I also thought, like my mind had this nice idea of 
how nice to have a dignified child, you know, like it's not trampling cookies into the rug or something. These are the images that are, so I sort of approved, you know, she said, when she eats something, like she knows that she should go sit down in a certain place and then I give her a cookie and she eats it and she's pretty grown up that way. So I got into the sort of falling off into my own fantasies about what was going on. And then she said, um, and I keep her in her high chair and she's not allowed to put her hand on the wall when she's eating. And I was like, this the little thing was born in February and she's not allowed to put her hand on the wall. Whoa, you know? And, <laughs> and I was then imagining how does this person achieve this and uh, starting to worry. Um, so I'm falling off on the other side already of the tightrope here of saying, uh-oh, you know, like this is like a bad mom. First it's a good mom, then it's a bad mom. And then she said, um, that's how I grew up. And listening to her voice, it was kind of like she felt very contented. It was clear that she hadn't been beaten into this, you know, that um, she was guided. And then she um, said, and if she changes, you know, like if she's no longer quite such a tidy baby, you know, and her eyes just got this little look in them and above the dental mask, you know. It was so sweet. And I thought, there it is, you know, that's, we took a few steps together, like on the tightrope sort of wobbling back and forth. I was wobbling, but um, in the end, the kindness in her eyes was so beautiful and we saw each other kind of, you know, in a great way. So I have this poem here. If someday in the morning you see you in a mirror or the dented spoon and wonder, where's my soul and where has my heart gone? Remember this. Catch the gaze of a woman on the metro or the subway or in the street. Look at a man. Seek their eyes and you will find yourself in that silvery space, the flash between souls. So it's not always just about doing it ourselves on our meditation cushion. Being present is also being present with others, with um, all the parts of our life, including the other people in our life that our meditation um, can be in connection. This um, dental hygienist came from a country that's being flooded with refugees at the moment and um, I asked her what that was like because she had just been home to visit her family. So I said, what's it like? And she said, um, <gasps> those poor people, I, I feel so terrible for how desperate they are. It was completely not the closed heart response at all. And then she said, um, but where can they go? You know, Europe is not in the greatest shape. Like if this flood becomes endless, it really is, it's a problem to figure out where they can go. And that's also true, but she didn't say it in a closed hearted way. She said, it's an issue to try to figure out um, what will be a solution that doesn't mean closing the heart or closing the doors or seeing like, oh, these people are just trying to come here and, you know, or ruining everything by being here or discrediting them, which is, that's back to the closing down the heart, um, not love, the opposite of love. What would be the creative response? Um, I think there's a Lutheran church in Concord that's planning to adopt one uh, refugee family it's only one family, but that's kind of like what we can do to figure out uh, what would be our response in knowing that. The Buddha visited his monk, Anuruddha, who had started his own community. So they had a forest that they lived in, which is what used to happen in those days. Like if you wanted to meditate, you would come and get a place like this. Or in India, it would be a grove of trees in those days. The climate is fairly favorable to living out of doors. So they, he um, sat down and they gave him some water. And he said, as one would say, he said, oh, Anuruddha, I hope you guys are happy here, all you and your meditator friends. And I hope you're receiving enough alms food and clothing from the local people. I hope you're living in harmony with each other. and." blending like milk and water, viewing each other with kindly eyes. So Anuruddha answered, he said, yes, we are, we're getting enough to eat and we're living in harmony and blending with each other like milk and water, not like milk and oil, as you see, and viewing each other with kindly eyes. And then the Buddha asked, um, how do you do that? And they explained how they did it, which is really interesting. Like, how does our community operate? They said, well, we think that it's a gain for me, it's a great gain for me that I'm living with other people in this holy life. 
I maintain actions of kindness openly and privately. I speak kindly of them openly and privately and mentally openly and privately I act with kindness. I consider, then they said that um, we're very different in body but we're one in mind. So they acknowledged in a way that they're quite, that they had their differences. They say, why should I not set aside what I wish to do and do what others wish to do? So letting go of their own, like making sure that you get it your way and being open to what other people might wish is part of kindness. And then the last thing they said, which I think is really essential to community is if one person notices that the water pots are empty, that same person fills them. <laughs> and saying if they need help, then they make a motion with their hand. They don't have to talk because they're, they're trying to meditate during the day, so they make a motion with their hand and someone comes and helps them. Now that's a small community, but it's a speaking of respect and understanding of the value of uh, living with each other and doing what needs to be done. Blending with each other like milk and water and setting aside a little bit their differences. So I also want to talk a little bit about how we treat ourselves in this because I've talked a lot about connecting with other people. And I think it seems that loving awareness is important because we often will reserve some of the worst punishments for ourselves, as if uh, we deserved it or somehow that's the natural way that we treat ourselves. Um, say you make a mistake, uh, you notice that it's happened, you think that you're not going to do it again, but what if you are sort of know that you're going to do it again, um, given that you've done it before. <laughs> Might have even tried to change. Like, my scheduling things are insane. Like, some, once my husband had to come to the airport and bring me my passport, I've gone to the airport on the wrong day, I have not shown up on the day that it was supposed to be. It's something um, for me, these things. And I can get into feeling like I just can't do anything right, you know? And I don't deserve um, to feel okay about myself at this moment. I've just made the same mistake again. You know, what's, why should I feel okay about it? I should actually uh, feel bad about it. I should. And it feels so natural to do that, what's called beating yourself up. And it's really amazing if you start to listen to those really uh, mean voices in your head. Let's call it voices in your head, but it's the a sense of a kind of anger and blame for yourself. It hurts, it really hurts. And it's maybe not necessary, like, you know, the another classic story similar to the wings of the bird um, in meditation is um, training a puppy, you know, have you heard this story before of like getting, bringing the puppy back to the paper and trying to get it to do its business in the right place or taking it outside. And for a long time I heard this story, I thought about the kindness and everything and having had several animals, I know um, it's really crucial for cohabitation that this should you know, happen and the being should learn not to pee and poop in your shoes or wherever it wants, you know, just anywhere like it would if it was wild. But the point of um, the kindness and the training is actually to develop a relationship with this animal, right? It's not just to train it. It's to have what's necessary for the love to flow. And that is a really interesting difference. So when we're training our mind to be with the breath or be with whatever, or when we're trying to open up with love and we end up in an obstacle and thinking like, well, I'm not feeling very loving right now, um, to be able to remember that the main point of this is actually to make a friend out of ourself and make our mind into a kind of a friendly mind. The um, well-known by now program called Mindful Self-Compassion of Chris Germer, um, he's, when we've asked him what is the main obstacle to feeling compassionate for ourselves, is people feel like um, we won't do anything anymore. We won't even try to do anything better. We'll just like be a blob of mistakes and not care. You know, if you're nice to yourself when you make a mistake or admit that you're not perfect, then you won't try to be better. And he said, actually, um, people who are compassionate for themselves are more willing to take risks because they are less afraid to fail. Does that make sense? 
So knowing that things don't always work out and not demanding that they absolutely work could be a condition of actually trying to do something new or different in your life if you accept yourself. Another one of the things that's really wonderful in their program is that they say like if you like hold your fist really tight and feel the tightness, not that there's ever no reason to have a tight fist, but to feel what it feels like, that tightness, that's what judging yourself all the time feels like. You can try it sometime either now or when you're at home. You know, to feel that kind of tight quality that is um, almost very physical. What does it feel like if you start to just be a little bit more relaxed? Mindfulness is compared to um, carrying a, a live bird in your hand, like how, how you're supposed to carry your meditation practices as if you've got a sort of living and fragile creature in your hand. So how would you carry a living and fragile creature? And what would carrying it gently almost bring up out of your physical expression, quality of love? So knowing that we will fall off the tightrope and need to bring ourselves back to do that with a quality of care and understanding what's called equanimity I was in a group also recently where um, one of the members was talking about being the only member of a, of a mixed race in the group and saying how hard that felt and that they could hardly even be in the group because they felt so alone and like they didn't belong and this incredible thing happened like one of the other group members said um, when I hear that, it kind of breaks my heart and I want to reach out and try to help you feel like you belong. But I think it's better for me to just trust that when you're telling your experience that you can be okay. And that's what, you know, I haven't completely let go of wanting to help you, but I don't want to reach in there and like get on, get on you with the help. Do you know what I mean? And the person thanked that other person and said, thank you for, thank you for that. You can see how often like wanting to intervene either in our own suffering or someone else's suffering too soon can be a way of um, not feeling helpless. You know, like to go in and sort of do something is because we can't really be with understanding what it might feel like to be the other person. We want to be able to be sort of empowered like the one who can bring the light. It doesn't always work. So in the ending of this, the equanimity and uh, the call to spread both of the wings of insight and compassion and really open in intimacy uh, with whatever's going on, it doesn't guarantee that you won't ever be uncomfortable. But within that openness, there's something that we can connect with. Actually, once we open, you can start to um, notice the quality of the openness itself. And that's a very beautiful thing to know about us. Suzuki Roshi says, if you have some experience of how the weeds in your mind turn into nourishment, your practice will make remarkable progress. So I'll close with a poem, if I can find it in this pile. I have it. Maybe I won't close with a poem. It's another one. Let me look at the world through your eyes. Maybe I'll shudder or gasp. Maybe I'll tilt my head as a question. Let me see how your color blue is turquoise for me, and my orange is your gold. Suddenly we're two stars with startling gravity. Let's compare the shining. Let's share the light. So just in closing, um, as we started by acknowledging what supports us, if there's any kind of light that you would like to share just you know, with your mind and imagination to make an offering to others or yourself or someone that you care about of any kind of insight or love that you have, I'll just uh, take a couple minutes where we can sit and do that together quietly.
Now, if anyone would like to speak so that I'm not the one who's talking, here's the microphone for you. This is a time for questions or um, just speaking, um, saying anything that you'd like to. Hello. Hello. Thank you so much for your talk. Um, I always kind of have like a little trouble formulating a question after like taking in like so many different perspectives and insights. Um, but I found uh, when you were talking about self-criticism and this relationship of like almost conditioning yourself, I guess. Um, and like this relationship between like making mistakes and wanting to condition yourself with negativity to try to prevent them in the future. Um, and also earlier you're talking about like how like your idea of your couch is different than obviously the physical couch in your home. Um, and I guess I was thinking about um, motivation and goals in life. Like, mm. I mean, there's plenty of like really simple physical goals or creative goals or helping other people to be happy um, and how or even like your meditation practice it like takes so much determination sometime yeah, and okay. how to uh, relate with this motivation without clinging to these mental formations of these events in the future that you're grasping to use as the fuel that keeps you going. Mm -hmm. I guess I'm just wondering if you could talk about a different way to relate to it. Well, I want to connect the, um, you know, when you're beating yourself up, it's almost like you're beating up a self in your mind that's similar to the couch. Do you know what I mean? The me that's in your mind is not really the, it's a, like a represented person. So a suggestion for the, those times is to actually drop into your body and uh, just feel your body sensations and take it as a mindfulness bell to just feel what's present, you know, to sort of look around and feel some body sensations and let the mind do what it's doing, but also take a little bit of your attention energy and put it on like the present moment and stuff. That's something that's real in the moment. So, um, about um, goals and meditation practice, I mean, there is a description of the unfolding of the meditational path that says that you will, your heart will open and your mind may become more calm and there's lots of implicit, almost like promises. And yet, when we talk about mindfulness, it's like the mindfulness that I'm describing is hoping to invite you to become present. So the mindfulness is really here as is the whole meditation path unfolds internally. And it can be really helpful to look at, um, even remember your deeper intentions from time to time through the day. Like, let's say I intend to be present. I'm gonna meditate right now and I wanna be present with my breath, that's my intention. I wanna feel my breathing and, um, or stay with my loving kindness or whatever I'm doing. You know, it could even be I'm gonna write my book. Whatever intention you have, this is my goal today is I'll be doing this. And somebody knocks at the door and in order to go let them in, you have to be present with them. So your intention to be present is a little bit deeper than just the, it's not tactical, you know, it's more strategic. So if you say my goal or my, my intention is to be um, loving and open, and you find yourself making a mistake of some sort, then you can be loving and open toward the one who feels like they made a mistake, the one who beats themselves up. and. Sometimes I almost imagine that I'm somebody else. Like, how would I treat myself if I was a little kid or something? You know, if I was a child who was feeling this way, I was my own child. Or if I was somebody else, how would I 
you know, how would I talk to this person who's busily engaged in this? And that seems to help. Also just knowing that um, we're not the only one who does this is helpful, like, because at the time when you're like really shaming yourself, you really feel like you're the worst person and it's a very isolated feeling. So if you think like there's millions of people all over the world who put themselves through this craziness and I'm suffering and they're all suffering, it kind of, rather than being depressing, it's actually kind of cool to, because it makes you feel compassion for everybody. Like, wow, we are a really crazy kind of being. Human beings are, we have the most insane minds of any species, I think. Like, we're the most complicated, like we're the most capable of incredible things, but also incredible horror, you know? It, that makes it interesting when it kind of makes it, somehow making it a bigger picture than this is helpful. Is that sort of something like what you wanted to? Definitely. Yeah. It gave me a, a funny take on the saying, treat others as you'd like to be treated, or treat yourself as you'd like to be treated. Yeah, exactly. It's kind of like, I kind of forget to do that sometimes too. <laughs> right. but thank you. You're welcome. Sometimes when we become intimate with ourselves, it's not that easy. You know, you feel like all of a sudden you're in more suffering than you thought. Um, like, just like if you want to search for justice, it can be uncomfortable sometimes. Like, if you just want to have business as usual in an organization, everybody's used to doing it this way. And, you know, we all know, you know, we're friends with so-and-so and we're like all the white people are friends and we don't want to let different colors of people be the boss or anything like that. And then it, it can be like really painful when you want to change something that is used to going a certain way. So that can happen with us too. Like sometimes, like say I get, I'm sorry, I'm talking a little more, but um, I have seen a lot in myself how it's easy. Like I get annoyed with my husband and suddenly he becomes a representative of all the men. You know, he'd like, he's a man. He's not himself. Like his, um, I was telling the hygienist about the electric toothbrush. <laughs> because I, I keep trying to train him to clean the handle because it gets all covered with toothpaste after he uses it. And, um, but I realize it's just that he can't really see and he doesn't wear his glasses when he's... <laughs> it's not that he's trying to bother me. It's actually the kind of vulnerability that he has that he doesn't really see all the tooth... You know, it's kind of fine for him in his blurry world of brushing his teeth. So he's actually a vulnerable person. He's not like this you know, a person who expects me to be the housewife who can scrub the floor on my hands and knees or whatever my mind goes into like that. So it's a little more touching um, when we don't split off into categories like that. Anyway. <laughs> I see some other females are laughing in the background. <laughs> but it happens with every, I mean, that's what happens with the refugees is that people find it difficult and then they suddenly say, who are all these kinds of people from some other place don't belong here, that we belong and they don't, you know. But we're just the same as everybody. We came from somewhere. Um, yeah, it might be us next time. Hi. Hi. Something you brought up, um, actually brought up a connection and you might have seem small. Uh, the comment about uh, CVS. <laughs> oh, do you work there? Um, <laughs> when um, you go in and you experience something like that, like um, let's say uh, inauthenticity or mm. uh, manipulation, right. uh, you have a sense of revulsion sometimes. That's right. And that is a small sense when it happens at something like uh, CVS or when you see something go on sale that you, let's say, if you're a subject matter expert in that specific thing, like technology, and uh, you see that it's um, a manipulation of people who do not know that this is not, that right. it should not be priced to begin with at a certain price, and that this is a manipulation to get people in, and you right. feel kind of a little bit of revulsion. That's a small right. example. But then there's bigger ones. It's, uh, yeah. So... I'm wondering if uh, dealing with the smaller ones in some way that I do not yet know of uh, could lead to dealing with the bigger ones. And I'll give you an example of a bigger one because why this connection came to me. And I usually struggle with uh, like how personal to, how much personal stuff to inject into a question, but I'll inject a little bit. So I have a conversation with a sibling and 
uh, they're very emotional and I do not have the same level of connection to the sibling. But I do know that they have the same, that they have a deeper level of connection to a parent, mm -hmm. to my mom. And I try to give them an example. I cannot be about how between us, we do not share the vulnerable points. Mm -hmm. But between them and my mother, they share vulnerable points and they can say these kind of things and it is authentic. Right. But when it feels like we do not share these points ever because there's, we're very guarded, that when the same thing is said between us, there's a sense of revulsion because we do know, like I know what I say, so what I mean when I mm -hmm. say those kind words and to say the same thing, mm -hmm. when I know the level of connection is very, very shallow to me is revolting. And it's hard to say to mm -hmm. somebody that these kind words feel kind of revolting, but mm -hmm. I feel it's related to those small things. That's right. How do you deal with that? It's important to respect, I think, the place in us where some of these difficult emotions come. Let's say it's a wish for there to be sincerity and a real connection, kind of, that, that you know, it shouldn't be shallow, it shouldn't be fake. And from your point of view, like you may have a you know, feeling of a kind of violation of something, you know, of, of some value that one holds oneself. So just um, to go to the CVS example, because it feels safer, you can put it on your own example, like to say, you see this person who's coming at you with a desire to manipulate you in some way, whether they're programmed or whether they, will, might, they might lose their job for it and stuff. Um, that's kind of like, that's, that's where they're at. That's the situation here and now. And your situation is of feeling like a kind of outrage or a kind of violation. It can be okay to say, I know this is wrong. I know what's going on is wrong. Or from my point of view, it's wrong. Like to stay connected to yourself and not say that your own burst of outrage is incorrect. You know, like the person who went into CVS and was feeling really upset and wanting to say like get away from me or something like this is standing in the middle of CVS and scream this is all fake well she didn't want to do that either you know and probably in the family it's better if you don't like have a tantrum about certain things um, in order to bring your own level of my own level of activation down it often helps me to be respectful and see where it's coming from like to see and value like that yeah but how far am I taking this in terms of like um, my emotions? You know, and I can say sometimes, especially in a family, it gets pretty um, intense. You know, you might feel like really hurt or really outraged or something, but then there's the meditation practice for you to understand yourself. Like what kind of intention as a family member do you hold? So it can be important just to see where the other person is. Maybe they don't have access to actually being sincere. Or they, you know, you understood that they have a different mind from you, a different relationship with your mom and stuff. And you don't even completely have to, um, let's see, like, people are always doing their best, you know? We're always doing the best we can do. If they can't really be sincere, it's because they can't really be sincere. You know, that's unfortunate. So there's a place for compassion and understanding that. Like maybe you have a deeper understanding than they do. Then why should you be angry in a certain sense? Does that make sense? Yes. Yeah. That's, a, that's the practice. Like your intention could be to hold that um, in your heart and then you watch yourself being a little more crazy than that would and that's when it's good to be able to meditate and to learn some ways of soothing yourself so you don't suddenly say something that you wish later on that you didn't say, you know. That sometimes happens. Has anyone here ever regretted something they said? <laughs> Usually why to regret it is because it's not useful. Like you might tell them something that feels true but it's, they can't hear it because of where they're at. So then it just becomes like an assault on their feelings and um, it just drives even uh, more pain into the whole relationship. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.